sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. My name is Brian, and remember, you can contact us to do your rumor sniffing, detail digging, dirty work. We are at we are the Story Guys at gmail.com. Uh, jumping right in, okay? A question about two unlikely bedfellows. Is it true Cher did background vocals for the Wu-Tang Clan under a secret identity? What a loaded question. Um, that's pretty high on the bizarro meter. Also, whenever someone uses the phrase secret identity, I go like full superhero disguise. Like, did Cher wear glasses in a trench coat to the recording studio? Did she change in a phone booth? Uh, it, it's all very colorful in my head. You're you're welcome for the visual image I just painted for you. Um, so... <laughs> Let's just break that down. Did Cher and Wu-Tang collaborate? That is one question. The second one is, did she hide that it was her, Cher, while they did this? Um, This is my favorite kind of question because it's a real nesting doll. You open up one story and you just find another one and then another one. And so warning, this is about to get sprawling, but I promise you it's awesome. And it also starts from like a simple place. The answer is technically yes. Yes, Cher once guested on a Wu-Tang record with a secret identity. But there's more to that story. Her identity, not the only secret. The album was also a secret. And almost no one has ever heard this collaboration. I said this was big and sprawling. So we'll go way, 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 way back to the Renaissance (laughs) we'll go back i'll get specific italy 15th 18th century italy how does music get made during this period i know we're whiplashing all over the place and you're like did i just turn on a david byrne audiobook uh no but i am going to borrow from something david byrne does in his book about music uh and i am going to talk about how it got made way back in the day there was this system called patronage now obviously you've heard the term patron You've heard of Patreon, which is, of course, sort of a play on this concept I'm about to describe. And you can visit ours at uh, patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. A little plug there. Uh, But basically, and I'm going to dumb it way down. Italian Renaissance, rich people pay poor people with the skill to create and perform for them. Right? I mean, once capitalism gets introduced, it changes. It's not the same. But there is still this concept of very fancy people who have a lot of money giving money to things like the ballet and the orchestra, right? They are patroning the arts and then they're attending and paying for tickets. And you're a patron when you do that. Uh, You might be a patron by donating to those programs, et cetera, et cetera. But back in the day, it may have been visual art. It may be musical art, but doing this, these rich people giving these folks money, it provided artists with a salary basically. And it then put their output at maybe a slight privy at least to what the patron desires. So there was always a little bit of skepticism around what we're getting. But I think when you look back and you see things that came out of the Italian Renaissance, typically people aren't like, well, that wasn't worth it. You know, I mean, <laughs> the the output output is pretty good. And it allowed people to, to live a lifestyle in which they were able to create over and over, right? While someone else was footing the bill. So 
that is very nice. Eventually, this system fades away. As I said, capitalism invents a different dynamic of artist versus consumer, and then we run through a few hundred years of varying scenarios. Now, why am I talking about patronage at the beginning of this podcast about share and RZA and the Wu-Tang Clan? Uh, fast forward back to the late 2000s, and you will find that Silver Rings and RZA from Wu-Tang were a little discouraged by the music scene of their current time. And they had been reading up on medieval history. So they come up with this idea to take the good parts of the patronage system and reinvent it. They actually released a statement, and this is I'm going to read from it. This is what they said in the late 2000s. Quote, the music industry is in crisis. The intrinsic value of music has been reduced to zero. Contemporary art is worth millions by virtue of its exclusivity. There's only one, right? By adopting a 400-year-old Renaissance-style approach to music, offering it as a commissioned commodity, and allowing it to take a similar trajectory from creation to exhibition to sale, we hope to inspire and intensify urgent debates about the future of music. So, to break it down, the idea is this. Wu-Tang's going to make a piece of art, like Da Vinci, like Michelangelo, and scarcity and singularity would drive the value. Now, just think about this. If you make an album and you make it available on a compact disc or a cassette tape or a vinyl record, and you print a certain number of them, more than you know people are going to buy them, it doesn't have a ton of value. The top value on something like that might be, back in the day, it might have been 20 bucks. Now it might be 10 bucks or 5 bucks, right? And if you put it on the internet, where people can get it with relative ease, then it has almost no value because people are not willing to spend their money on it unless you're a person like me who still loves to hold compact discs in their hands. Despite the mockery I get from everyone, including Murdoch. So they're kind of onto something, right? They're like, listen, if we make a record that only one person gets, we probably could make way more money. And not only that, forget how much money we might make, we're also going to drive this conversation about the value of art and how readily available we should make things. Now, we should preface by saying that Wu-Tang has an audience at this point. This doesn't work for everybody, right? If I just make an album in my studio right here right now, probably can't get very many of you to give me anything for it, right? Because... Not really a proven thing. Not a lot of clamoring for Brian's solo record. Uh, but if you already have an audience, you have a little bit of, you know, you can play with this idea. You can play with your audience and see see what you're able to get. This is similar to when Radiohead to put out uh, in Rainbows in sort of the non-traditional manner of the time. And people were criticizing that, saying like, look, look, this only works for Radiohead because Radiohead already has a fan base. But regardless... It was an interesting conversation. It was an interesting proposition. And so this is what they decided to do. They decided that they would secretly record this record and then sell one single copy. Now, they didn't tell anybody they were doing this for a while. They spent six years putting together this thing. They put it on two CDs in a silver jewel-encrusted box with a wax seal on it. You can look up pictures of what this box looks like. It's insane. I had been scrolling through things, looking at things for the research. And I didn't realize what I was looking at. I thought I was looking at some like medieval picture. 
and it turned out I was like, oh, that's the actual CD in its case. Like it's crazy all the stuff they put on it. They leather bind the liner notes, and then they send it by air at some point in March of 2015, and it gets detained at JFK, which is a hilarious side story. Border Patrol finds this thing when they're going through all stuff, this medieval-looking crazy box, and they're worried there is something bad in it. Um, They're running around, what's in the box? Uh, So this was all part of a limited press party that they did where they let press, they invited 150 people from the press into a room, had the CD shipped there, played 13 minutes, 13 minutes of it. And then they take it to auction. Now, what's funny is if you read about people's reaction to those 13 minutes, like whatever hype they had instilled already and whatever press they had already done worked because the media people that were hanging out in that room freak out about how good it is. Everybody's like, dude, this is the best Wu-Tang's been since the early 90s. Like, this is so much better. And they'd put out, it's not like they were in a dead period. Like, they'd put out other stuff. There had been some sort of infighting. There's, like, other Wu-Tang stuff happening during this time. Um, and so, it, when when people hear this, they're like, oh, my God, this is the best. This is way better than the Wu-Tang we've been getting at the normal price. <laughs> um, so, whether or not that's true, the hype works. They take the thing to auction. Now, they use this online auction house in New York City, and they have all of these rules about what can be done with it once it's purchased. And the most interesting one is that there's an 88-year clause where it cannot be released commercially. So once it's bought, 88 years before someone outside of, I guess, the heir, a parent of whoever buys it, right, um, can do anything with it to like put it out in the world and like make people pay to listen to it. So there's all this hype leading up to this. They do that party in March. In May, they do the auction and they sell it. But no details and no amount of what they sold it for are released. So nobody knows any of that. Now, as I unwind all of this, something might be occurring to you. This might sound familiar to you for some reason. And that reason is that six months later, it comes out that this record was bought by Martin Shkreli for $2 million. If for some reason you're blanking on that name, this is the dude with the highly punchable face who was the CEO of a pharmaceutical company that hiked up the price of a drug called Daraprim. You remember this story. The story stretches all the way to just a few months ago because in 2018, Shkreli finally finally gets his hand slapped for securities fraud and he's ordered to surrender $7.5 million in assets. And as part of that, this record goes to the DOJ. So this Wu-Tang album now goes to the Department of Justice and they're like, well, listen, we've got to try to recover this money, so we're going to sell the thing. That happens back in July. Two months ago, we found out who bought it this time, and it turns out it was this group who buys NFTs that honor, quote, anti-establishment rebels. And they say they want to make the album more widely available now that they have it, but there's still that 88-year clause that's built into it. So who knows? But we might be closer than ever to hearing this collaboration between Cher 
and the Wu-Tang Clan. And yes, that is where we started. I know what happened for the last 10 minutes. You're welcome. Uh, So this record is called Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. And we know a few things. We know that on this record, Cher sings the line, Wu-Tang, baby, they rock the world at some point, which (laughs) is awesome. Uh, We also know that she did this recording independent of the Wu-Tang Clan. So as much as I like to envision this happening in a studio where there's just like spliffs and 40s, I do not think that's actually what happened. I, I the, Her rep, for some reason, was very adamant about saying like, well, you know, they did this in different locations, so they haven't actually spent time together. Regardless, they did get Cher to do this. Now, I, I think there's a question of like, why? And when... As I said, Wu-Tang had gotten the hype meter up pretty high when they finally announced they were doing this. Six years in the making, they come out, they say, hey, we're going to release this, but we're going to release it secretly um, and through an auction, and only one person can have it. And oh, by the way, why would they want it? Well, these critics are saying it's the best thing we've ever done. Plus, here's a here's a list of folks who are on the guest list on this record. And on that record guest list, they list some very bizarre people. Um, Here we go. The guests included the Barcelona soccer team, uh, the Game of Thrones actress Carice Van Houten, and it actually doesn't. This list does not include the name Cher. This list includes a different name, Bonnie Joe Mason, and that gets us to the secret identity, and that gets us to the next nesting doll, like I talked about. So Cher was born Sherilyn Sarkissian in El Centro, California in 1946. Her father's Armenian-American, her mother an actress, who used to actually get young Cher parts as an extra on shows like Ozzy and Harriet. By the time she's nine, she gets really into watching Audrey Hepburn movies, Breakfast at Tiffany's in particular, which, shout out, can't blame her, that's an all-timer. And she starts trying to act and dress like Audrey Hepburn. Now, Cher's a really interesting character, because if you remember, we did this episode about Berlin, right, and Terry Nunn. And I made a note that Terry Nunn was very vocal, that she was planning on being famous from a young age. It was a plan. She didn't know how, she didn't know what skills she was going to use, but her goal was to be famous, right? This is different than people who say, hey, I want to be a guitarist, or I want to be in a band, or I want to make music, or I want to make art, or I want to be, you know, I want to make a million dollars. Like, this is just fame, is is what's driving. And she was a little upset there weren't more dark-haired actresses in Hollywood. She's quoted once as saying, I couldn't think of anything that I could do. I didn't think I could be a singer or a dancer. I just thought, I'm going to be famous That was my goal. So, again, very open, just like Terry Nunn. So much her goal that she drops out of school at 16, she moves to Los Angeles with a friend, and at this point she's going by the name Cheryl LaPierre. Um, That had to do with another marriage for her mother and an adoption. So she literally does the fabled thing. She goes to L.A., she takes acting classes, and then she supports herself any way she can, looks like as a dancer for a while, and she's just being bold. She's walking up to strangers. She's trying to get a break, and she meets this guy who happens to be working for another guy. Uh, This guy she meets, his name is Sonny. The guy he's working for, his name is Phil, 
And of course, I'm talking about Sonny Bono and Phil Spector. It's 1962. She's 16. He's 27, Sonny Bono. And he just separated from his first wife. And he's actually, when they meet, he's macking on her her friend. And, you know, as these things go, they're all hanging out. And Cher mentions one night that she's getting booted from her apartment arrangement. And Sonny says, well, listen, you can come stay at my place because I'm not living with a woman right now and it's a wreck and I need somebody to clean it. So he basically is like, listen, you want to be my housekeeper, you can come live here. I do not know if she actually cleaned his house. I do know that they are not immediately romantic. They actually are living together for a while. And there's sort of a paternal element. If you read much about Cher, because of the, her mom was married a lot, a lot of different times. And there was always a little bit of a of, uh, of a, a need of a father figure that Cher had. And so, I mean, even her mother has commented on in, in the press over the years, you know, her attraction to Sonny was definitely paternal to a certain degree. Somebody who was looking after her, taking care of her. Look, she's in a desperate situation, doesn't have a place to live. This guy swoops in, right? It's a paternal thing to do. Um, now, I will say, not only does that maybe fulfill some some father needs that you have really good guy to get to do that if you're also simultaneously trying to get famous because he is working for Phil Spector as I already mentioned and he's like oh you need a job besides cleaning my house apparently um you sing you want to be a backup singer now this has just become a quick mention in the much larger and long story that is a legend of share we'll talk about this more later but the share story is just fascinating we could literally do i say this about a lot of the artists we cover here we could do a breakout mini podcast just about share that would span episodes and episodes there's so much to cover about her but this is a thing that you just read when you're running down you know here's things that happened to share when she was coming up she actually sings backup on the crystals dadu ron ron the ronettes be my baby and the Righteous Brothers, you've lost that love and feeling. Now, with pedigree like that, it's pretty quickly time to get her her own shot, right? And Sonny is on this. He's ready to figure out how he gets this girl her own thing. And so he goes to Phil and he says, Phil, would you be willing to produce and put out something with Sherilyn on it? Now, Let's talk about the timing. At this point, it is 1964. Let's think about popular music in America in 1964. You want a more specific date? Okay, let's talk about February 7th of 1964. It is a day that is marked by most as the start of the British invasion. It is the day that the Beatles land at JFK. Now, I don't know about you. But typically, I don't associate Cher and the Beatles as being from the same time period. But in fact, the beginning is happening for both of them in the same weeks. It's in these weeks that Sonny Sonny Bono convinces Phil to produce this single. And Phil and a few songwriters whip up a tune that they think will get attention. They, They realize something big is happening. And they it might be hard to get a general audience attention. So in late February, early March of 1964... How are you going to get impressionable young music fans to pay attention if you are not a mop-topped Brit? The answer is, you sing about a mop-topped Brit. Now, here's a fun aside. Murdoch would enjoy this if he was here. 
Let's talk about the pecking order of the Fab Four for a second, okay? Power rank the Beatles. I, I, you know, just in your own head. I'm probably going to guess you put John or Paul first, and then you put George, and then at the end, you put Ringo. You might have even put Pete Best and then Ringo, right? But in 1964, there hasn't been decades of output in movies and media and whatever else drives the value, right? There, no octopus's garden for us to all just shake our heads at. So when these cats go to put together a love song meant to cash in on the British invasion, Phil and his songwriting team, one of whom goes on later to work for Ringo, funny aside, they go with the drummer. And that is how we end up with a song called Ringo, I Love You. released on March 4th, 1964, not even a full month after the Beatles landed JFK. And it's funny because Phil, it just his mind's always working, right, for how you make things the most marketable. And he's concerned that a song won't sell or work if the singer doesn't sound very girl next door-ish, very American. And as I said, at this point, Cher is going by the name Sherilyn Lapierre, which definitely doesn't sound American. So he says, listen, let's release the song under a different name. Let's give her something that sounds very, 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 you know, like anyone you'd meet just down the street. And they choose the name Bonnie Joe Mason. Now, Notice, no wall of sound from Phil on this uh, this recording that you just heard. It's very garage. And obviously, it's just like a compilation of Beatle references in lyrics and in melody. But I understand, coming from the world of marketing, like, I get it, this idea. The calculations all make sense. We're going to put it out right around the this time where everybody's talking about the Beatles. We're going to... Um, make it sound like a Beatles song. Like we'll we'll get some momentum, right? Because we've got the timing and we've got the novelty, and we've got a decent vocal performance. This could work, and this could launch this girl. This is a great bet for taking somebody who's completely unknown. But when they push it to radio, they encounter an issue they clearly did not see coming. Now you just heard the song. When radio programmers hear that. It's 1964. They think that's a dude. (laughs) They literally think it's a homosexual love song to Ringo. That's how big the Beatles were, right? Breaking barriers right and left. 
The song gets a little bit of airplay in Buffalo, but everywhere else it flops because people won't play it because of this. Right? And this is a false start for our girl Cher. Now, the song's pretty hard to find in any physical form. You can, There's links to it in the show notes. You can find it on YouTube, some pretty degraded quality versions of it. It's made its way onto a few indie label rarity comps. But I will tell you, if for some reason you're listening to this and you're like, man, I got that on vinyl, uh, hold on to that because that's, that's worth something. That's not an easy song to find. So now let's tie this back to the Wu-Tang, right? Fast forwarding all the way up to 2014, Wu-Tang and their people hatch a plan to make a crazy collaboration on a crazy album, and they want to keep another layer of crazy during the crazy promotional period, and someone throws out the idea of bringing back that Americanized stage name that started it all for Sherilyn Sarkissian slash Cheryl LaPierre, and that is how Bonnie Jo Mason ends up crooning, Wu-Tang baby, they rock the world, in the ear of one corrupt pharmaceutical CEO scumbag for $2 million. Ah. <laughs> uh. Wow, what a ride. Now, before we finish, I actually think there's a few more things worth worth hitting with Cher while we're here. Obviously, like I said, we could do a whole series on her career and its many arcs and its many forms. We won't do that right here. But I do want to connect the dots that get her from this point. Because you got to be listening to this and be like, how do you go from failed novelty singer to American TV personality and musical icon? I mean, it happens fairly quickly for her, right? We've already got some of the key people in play. So we'll talk about that. And then I also want to talk about another alter ego period for her. She tries this again, sort of, which I find really interesting. So back to the 1964 timeline. That song happens in March. And the romance heats up with Sonny and Cher. They get fake married in Tijuana uh, before the end of the year. Sonny is still determined to make Sherilyn slash Bonnie Joe a solo success. But in the process, they discover another issue. Not just that people think she's a guy when she sings sometimes. She has really bad stage fright. And as she starts to perform, she starts to insist that Sonny come on stage and help alleviate the nerves. If he's there and doing harmonies, it helps her be able to perform. So if you've seen early videos, you notice that they face each other, and that's partly so that she's not freaked out by the people that are watching. So... They attempt making music as a duo for a while called Caesar and Cleo. And they put out some singles that nobody likes. And around the same time, Sonny is able to get her another record deal, this time using the moniker Sherilyn. And she starts to have a little success. In 65, they then change their duo from Caesar and Cleo to Sonny and Cher. And they record a little song called I Got You, Babe. Now, all these years later, it's easy to forget but I Got You Babe was a world shaker. And in a bit of irony and storytelling symmetry, I Got You Babe actually knocks the Beatles off the British charts. That happens. And Sonny and Cher start a fashion trend and a mania. I wouldn't say it's the same as Beatlemania, but it's a big deal. People wanting to dress and look like the two of them. So let's talk about this other alter ego thing too. As I said... Cher has this massive career in which she has all of these different eras. She reinvents herself over and over. She tries different styles. She tries different looks. And she has fascinating relationships. Like I said, I want an episode on the David Geffen Cher years, an episode on the Greg Ullman Cher years. This is true. I'm throwing this in as a bonus. It's not even in my notes. But in the research, I was reminded that she married Greg Ullman and then went to get it annulled 
very quickly afterwards. It was like nine days, I think, because she like didn't know he had a drug problem. Like that came out pretty quickly. <laughs> they end up reconciling and they were together for a while. Um, but then she hangs out with this guy named Les Dudek. Now he's a guitar player and he played with the Almonds. I didn't find exactly where they got connected, but I'm assuming that's when, because he, he plays the acoustic guitar on Melissa. There you go. That's a fun one. Um, but he's done all sorts of stuff. He played with Steve Miller band. Uh, he's, he's done a lot, but in the seventies and early eighties, Cher is in this disco period with another guy that we've talked about on the show named Giorgio Moroder. And, uh, she and Dudek come up with this idea that while she's doing this, this disco period, and while she's in Vegas doing a residency, she gets a residency making a ton of money in Vegas, which is for the time was like, you know, it's not, you hear that now and we all have our thoughts about Vegas residencies, but this is a big deal for Cher to have her own show. But while she and Les are together, they cook up this idea that they should start a rock band together. Now, there's always been a little flirtation with Cher as a rock singer. How would that work? Could we try it, right? But right now, the money's coming in from disco. And when they start to talk about this, Cher has this idea. She's like, if we do this, I don't want it to be Cher having a rock period or Cher fronting a rock band. I want it to be a rock band. And I want to earn anything we get on our own merits, not on my past history. So... They don't exactly keep it a secret that she's in the band, but they do not promote the band as Cher's band or as Cher fronting a band, even though that's what's happening. So she does vocals, but she even tries to change her look when they perform. She sort of cuts her hair and does a punk thing, and they call this project Black Rose. That song right there, that's a song called Julie that is on the Black Rose album, and it's written by Bernie Taupin. They get some heavyweights to write on this record. Yeah. Uh, David Foster write a tracks? writes a track? Carol Bear Sager? Heavyweights. But this whole thing was just an experiment to see if they can make it without cashing in on Cher's name, and it doesn't work. Her fans don't really hear about it. And then they use Share Star Power, even though they're, you know, they're like kind of conflicted about this, to get TV gigs. So they're on Midnight Special, they're on Johnny Carson, they get some coverage on Milton Berle, and they cram in some club and tour dates in between Share's Vegas commitments. They just try to drum up publicity. But it just there isn't a spark. And there's like rumors that they're gonna put out a second album at some point, but Share and Les Dudek break up and it never happens. Now, I find all of that fascinating. Again, Black Rose sort of hard to find. You, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find a song that Bernie Toppin wrote for Cher to perform on Spotify. It just It's not out there. Um, some Cher fan clubs have resurrected some of this and put it on YouTube, so you can find it there. But it, 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 this is all crazy to me. I will say, you got to love Cher's ability to deal with failure. Like She just keeps pushing. And within a few years of Black Rose falling flat on its face... She doesn't care. She's got an Oscar nomination for Moonstruck. And technically, you know what I, I'm pretty sure qualifies as Cher's biggest hit of her career? Do you believe in love after love? I can feel 
Yeah, that song came out in 1998. That's almost 35 years after Bonnie Joe Mason fails to hit on Ringo Starr. And Cher, still going strong. All I got to say is never give up on your dreams, kids. If you've got a story you want us to look into, you know what to do. Send us an email to wearethestorygays at gmail.com. We would love to check it out for you. And meanwhile, check out everything we've got going on at wearethestoryguys.com. Check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, make sure that you just keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.